Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Danny Klinkscale Reasonably Irreverent Podcast. Insightful and witty commentary probing interviews, and detours from the beaten path. Welcome to Kansas City Profiles, presented by Easton Roofing. Jeff Montgomery truly is a American success story, a small-town guy from Ohio who never was highly recruited, highly drafted, or possessed a super-strong throwing arm, although it was durable, to say the least. Jeff Montgomery was a success at all levels of sports, exceeding each and every step of the way, despite not being the biggest guy in the world, the strongest guy in the world, but certainly ended up in the Royals Hall of Fame. He pitched 700 games. He saved over 300 of them. He pitched on bad teams. He pitched on good teams. And, of course, he is broadcast now for bad teams and for good teams. He's a familiar face on Royals broadcast now, the Royals Hall of Famer Jeff Montgomery, a American success story of the highest order is our subject for today. A pleasure to sit down and speak with a pleasant guy, Jeff Montgomery. And you'll find out just how pleasant coming up next. We're here with Joe Spiker, the president of Easton Roofing. And Joe, you worked for other companies in the construction industry. What inspired you to start your own company in Eastern Roofing? Well, you know, Danny, when you are working for somebody else, you oftentimes don't get to see the project through from beginning to end, and you don't get the final control over the customer experience. And I wanted to build a place where people can come and get work done on their house and not have to worry about being treated the wrong way and get a good customer service experience start to finish. The company slogan is, Where Integrity Matters. Why is that so particularly important to you? Well, for us, what that means is treating each other with respect at work, treating our clients with respect, and making the right choice, especially when no one's looking. So when you're presented all the time as a contractor with choices that have to be made Are you going to make more money on this if you cut a corner? And we just wanted to make a place and a slogan that said to our people and to whoever is our customer, we're not going to do that. We're going to make the right choice, regardless of profit. Easton Roofing, where integrity matters. Sumner One is the company to make your office maximize efficiency. Their family of companies make up one of the largest independent dealers of office technology in the Midwest. They are proud to bring the best service and technology to top companies across the region. Sumner One can help your organization run more smoothly than ever. Sumner One printers, copiers, MFPs, managed print services, document management, infrastructure design, IT services, disaster recovery, and business continuity. Welcome to the one place where everything works. For more information, call Carl Little at 913-752-2256. Looking for a truly unique escape from your normal entertainment or corporate team-building regimen? Stay tuned for an exclusive offer only for reasonably irreverent listeners. I'm excited to tell you about an extraordinary destination, the Exit Room, located in the heart of beautiful downtown Lee Summit. The Exit Room is a distinctive entertainment option that offers a cool alternative to the normal couples' night out, family get-togethers, and corporate team-building events. The Exit Room is a -a one-of-a-kind boutique escape room catering to special occasions and corporate team-building events and is unmatched in the Kansas City metro. With five individually designed and varied escape room adventures, your party or employees can unplug from their electronic world, interact with one another, match wits, and ultimately escape the humdrum of the ordinary. The Exit Room adventures cross decades and centuries and create fascinating fun. I know the owners well. They are local folks. Their staff is warm and friendly. Their lobby is inviting and beautiful. And their adventures are award-winning. Check online. There are over 1,000 reviews and note that they are a rare five-star ranked business. Visit their website and Facebook page and any of my listeners who books online at theexitroomkc.com using the promo code CLINKSCALE19 gets 10% off any ticket purchase. The Exit Room and Lee Summit. Unplug, interact, and escape. Jeff, you're an Ohio boy. What was it like uh, to be little Jeff Montgomery, five, six, seven years old, when you first started to have some memories in the Wellston, Ohio area? Well, I grew up in a very small town, kind of in the middle of nowhere. People say, what's it close to? And I say, really, it's not close to anything. 
Uh, it's about 100 miles from Cincinnati, about 75 miles south of Columbus, so uh, kind of in the hill country of southern Ohio. And a big sports town. I mean, uh, everybody seemed to play everything. Uh, we played baseball, football, basketball. Um, and I even actually tried to run track a little bit because I was always a did a lot of running. But uh, baseball was always my love. Uh, really enjoyed uh, growing up and playing sandlot baseball. Uh, a lot of you know kids nowadays will you know play their 60 or 70 games a, in the summertime, and parents – uh, we'll say, gosh, that's a lot of baseball. Don't you get burned out on baseball, you know, with that much baseball? And I said, well, I used to play probably 60 or 70 games a month because uh, <laughs> it was every day, uh, some in the morning, some in the afternoon, some in the evening. So uh, it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. And it was ironic that my professional career started with the Cincinnati Reds, and I grew up a huge Cincinnati Reds fan. Were you, what, was, uh, what was your family structure like? Did you have siblings, uh, parents, stable home? Yeah, mom and dad both worked. Um, as a result, my brother and sister and I were uh, on our own a lot as far as, uh, especially during the summertime, but my grandma and grandpa lived about two blocks uh, up the street, so we were able to go you know, go to my grandma and grandpa's house for breakfast or lunch, whatever. We caught the school bus there in the mornings before we went to school, so uh, it was a real you know, kind of close-knit uh, community. Uh, our family was very close. Uh, my mom has uh, unfortunately passed away about four years ago, but... She had nine sisters, so uh, had had lots of uh, cousins and you know lots of uh, family uh, right there in the Wellston area. Did what did your parents do? My dad was in the uh, construction business. Uh, he worked for a large company that was actually based out of uh, Pittsburgh, Kansas, and they had an Ohio division. Uh, he worked there the majority of his career. Then, unfortunately, uh, they discontinued the operations, and he was forced to start a new career at about age forty-five or so. And he started his own construction company with another one of his former colleagues, and they were very successful. And eventually, uh, they sold to uh, my sister and, and and the other gentleman's son. So it, it kept the business in the family, so to speak. And my mom, she was always in uh, accounting, uh, an office manager, uh, worked for uh, we had one major plant in Wellston. It's now Pillsbury. Right, uh, but it was uh, a, a number of other different operations before be, uh, being uh, converted to Pillsbury. My mom worked in that same uh, situation, although for different people, doing the same thing for uh, her entire career. So she didn't become the office manager for your dad's business. No, she uh, <laughs> she always did her own thing. And in fact, when my dad lost his job, we nearly moved to Pittsburgh, Kansas. But my mom had such a good uh, position with her company. Uh, it really was didn't make a lot of sense for her to give up her career right. uh, in order for my dad to move. And I think, unfortunately, the same uh, situation occurred in uh, the Pittsburgh, Kansas operation. It discontinued operations, so we would have been out of luck. Yeah, so it was a fortuitous decision there. Uh, when uh, was your Is your sister your only sibling? No, I have a brother as well. Okay. My brother lives in North Carolina. My sister lives in Florida. My dad now lives in Florida, so... Uh, my wife Tina and I, we get a chance to spend the majority of the winter down in Florida, so it's good to get a chance to see my dad. When did you start? Uh, you said you played all sports, and you know all of us did when that type of situation. But uh, was it, you said it was a small area, but it wasn't hard to find games. Oh gosh, no, we uh, we had we usually had enough uh, kids or players to. Uh, to field two or three different teams. And, really? And we would uh, usually play short games, and the winner would keep playing. The loser would have to sit out. And it didn't matter if it was baseball or if it was basketball. Uh, we, we were very competitive. And the good thing about it was it wasn't like I was always playing with kids my age. I oftentimes had a chance to play against kids uh, much older than me, which I think kind of forces you to, to raise your game and uh, elevate your performance a little bit. When did you start to think that, when did you start to see that you were a good player and uh, that maybe this was the sport for you? Probably when I was about six or seven years old. Really? Uh, I played on a, we called it peewee baseball. And the first time you would hit off the pitcher and then you would hit off the tee after that. So I was a pitcher at a very young age. And for, you know, for some reason I was gifted with an arm that I could throw the baseball with more velocity than any of the kids, even the kids that were, you know, three or four years older than me. And, and that just continued during my uh, entire amateur career. I just was able to uh, 
Uh, I had the gift of being able to, you know, have a nice live arm and I had good mechanics. My dad um, really helped me a lot with regards to my pitching mechanics when I was a kid. Did he play ball? He did. He he didn't play professionally, um, but he was a very good athlete his entire life. And uh, uh, he he coached me as well in, in Little League. So he was able to kind of protect me a little bit. And he actually coached me after Little League all the, all the way through American Legion Baseball. So my entire uh, youth, my dad was around and had a real key part in uh, my development. But, um, yeah, I, I, I think uh, – you know, as early as probably eight or nine, I think my dad felt like there was something special there, and he, he was very protective. So there were never any challenges in that relationship. It sounds like it was, a, you know, some people, you know, you can get the Todd Marinovich type of thing where, you know, there's it's overbearing or whatever. That doesn't sound like that for you. It wasn't. Uh, I, I loved playing so much um, that I would have I would have played for anybody. It was a great opportunity uh, for my dad and I to have a really special bond in um you know, driving to the games and during the games and after the games. Uh, we just spent a lot of time together, and uh, we're still close today. What was uh, your relationship like with your mom? Very good, and uh, occasionally my dad would have to travel. Um, but when he traveled, my mom was out in the front yard playing catch with me. I, I loved to throw baseball, and uh, sometimes she would even be my catcher. Uh, <laughs> so but my, my mom is very athletic. She was an outstanding golfer. Um, she won her club championship. I'm going to guess 15 years in a row. I mean, wow. She was a really good golfer. So uh, I got a lot of my athleticism, both from my mom and my dad. And uh, they were both, you know, highly competitive. And um, they were always there for me. And I, 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 I can't remember uh, many, if any, games I'd ever played during my amateur career that my mom and or my dad were not in the stand. So they were always very, very supportive. That's really great because, uh, you know, I, I can remember – I can sp- still remember to this day specific games where I'd be like, my. I remember my them not showing up or something, and it was very disappointing. And, uh, you know, for a kid, you remember things like that. Yeah, absolutely. And that's uh, one thing that I really missed uh, in my playing career was the fact that my kids were uh, at that age where they were, you know, involved in a lot of activities. And I, unfortunately, had to miss a lot of those because I was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, working in nights, you know, uh, with baseball and traveling half the time during the season. But when I retired from baseball, I was fortunate to be able to coach both of my boys for about nine years. So I got a chance to repay a little bit of that debt. Oh, that's great. So uh, as you grew a little older, what is the path for you uh, starting to see this as a, eventually an avenue to college? Well, that was my goal, and I remember my mom and dad both, they, they kind of challenged me that uh, if I ever wanted a scholarship, you know, grades were going to be a real key ingredient in uh, obtaining that scholarship. So I worked really hard. Uh, I was able to graduate. I was a top male graduate in my high school class. My class was only about 150 people in the class, but uh, I still kind of took that as a challenge to, to excel academically, and uh, it really paid off because... Uh, when it was time to go to school, it was it made the decision easy for the coaches to look at me because uh, of my <clears throat> academic success. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> because of my academic success, so, uh, but that was always a goal. Was just I, I wasn't thinking about playing professionally. My goal was to get a scholarship, and fortunately, I was able to do that. It was it wasn't the school that I had uh, hoped to go to. In fact, it was the fourth school on my list. Right. I wanted to go to Ohio State. They said right. no. Ohio University was uh, on my list, as was Miami of Ohio. And all three of them essentially said, you know, either you can't play at this level or we don't have any money. Right. And then my fourth school was Marshall University, and they gave me a nice tuition, board, and book scholarship. So I got almost a full ride to play baseball. Oh, that's And that's somewhat unusual. A lot of times they'll split uh, things like that. Coming out of high school, was there, was there any professional opportunity? I think I could have signed, uh, I was not drafted, but I, I think I could have signed as a non-drafted free agent mm-hmm. and just uh, started my career, but I had that really nice scholarship opportunity, so I didn't want to forego that, uh, and it really worked out well. We're talking with Jeff Montgomery, Royals Hall of Famer, and uh, continuing on there, what was, uh, when you got to Marshall, was it a big step, was, uh, was, was it a, a, a difficult transition, or is it pretty seamless? It was very seamless. Um, it seems to me, you know, just thinking back over all of my years, I don't know if I was ever the best player on any team that I ever played on. Um, but I was always able to, to maybe meet the challenge of playing at the next step up. The higher level I would go, I would get a little bit better each level. 
and that was the same coming from high school into college. When I went to college, uh, I was fortunate. Uh, the first game I pitched in my college career uh, was against the Univers- University of North Carolina at Charlotte, and I threw a one-hit shutout. So, uh, <laughs> so you were- I was able to, to really you know step into the college level and, and, and do quite well. And um, that was really kind of what got me opportunities to pitch a lot in college was um, you know early success. So it worked out well going to Marshall because uh, I don't know if I would have had that opportunity if I would have gone to Ohio State, for example, uh, to pitch as a freshman. Take us through your college career and uh, when you got through to the point where you were a junior, what, was, uh, what were the thought processes there? Yeah, so my freshman year, I really never uh, had an opportunity to work out much uh, in the wintertime because I had thumb surgery my, uh, the fall of my freshman year. So I had a cast on my right hand slash arm up to about my elbow uh, until sometime in early January. So I never had a chance to hit the weight room. I'd never lifted weights in my life because uh, I was playing sports year round. And I ended up, um, you know, I mentioned I had a good freshman year. So my sophomore year, I, I'm thinking I'm going to get stronger i'm gonna get bigger i'm gonna you know hopefully throw better and it worked exactly the opposite i got too big i got too strong and uh, my freshman or my sophomore year at marshall uh, was not nearly as productive as my as my uh, freshman year Uh, so then going into my junior year i kind of thought well i'm gonna work even harder and i got bigger and i got stronger (laughs) and i and i i i I wasn't pitching as effectively as i did even my freshman year what do you think were the dynamics of being too strong uh, just inability to to get the extension, um, you know, on, on on the pitches. I think you're just a little too tight. You're a little, you know, your your muscles are not elongated enough to be able to get the extension you need uh, on all your pitches. So, but by the middle of the season, my junior year, in fact, I started my junior year as one and five, with about a seventy RA. But by the end of my junior year, uh, I think because I'd stopped lifting weights and my, you know, I was really getting back in better baseball shape. Right. Uh, I started throwing the ball much better. And ironically, the last two games I pitched, there were scouts in the stands to watch players. On one, uh, the University of Kentucky's team, who I pitched against, and two, Ohio University's team, who I pitched against. So there were prospects to be drafted on both of those teams, and I had two really good games against those two teams. So the last two games I pitched in college. And really kind of out of nowhere, I went from a guy who was struggling uh, the first half of my junior season to now uh, being invited to Riverfront Stadium for a pre-draft workout by the Cincinnati Reds. And uh, so my junior year was very instrumental, but um, I think I ended up with about a 5-5 five and five, uh, record with a 5 ERA, but I pitched two good games at the right time. Yeah. What was the college life like for you? It was great. Um, Huntington, West Virginia, is a, you know, it's a college town essentially. And I met my wife, Tina, my freshman year, uh, right after uh, winter break. Uh, I'd come home, and uh, we went. We met her on a blind date at um, the baseball team through a, a party, and I didn't have a date. In fact, I'd broken up with my girlfriend from high school uh, during the, the first semester of my uh, freshman year. And um, so one of my teammates, uh, his girlfriend, and my wife, now Tina, were roommates, and uh, mm-hmm. it was a blind date, and we met, and uh, that was, I guess, 38 years ago. But uh, <laughs> so it was, it was a lot of fun. Uh, I loved the college life. It Did was, you uh, kind of really hit it off it right away? So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, from the from the first date we had, I mean, we've been together ever since. We, I mean, the rest of that that year, we had lunch or, or dinner together at the cafeteria to school, and uh, yeah, we just became very close. It was kind of an immediate connection for us. So. Uh, you know, not only get an opportunity for a career uh, in baseball at Marshall, I met my wife. <laughs> That's great. Uh, so you were a ninth round draft choice by the Reds. What uh, tell us? Tell us the magnanimous amount of cash you hauled down for that. Well, it was interesting. I, um, like I said, I went to the pre-draft workout. Had a good workout. Um, I was playing golf with my dad uh, a week or so after the workout, and um, ended up uh, we're on the fourth or fifth hole of the golf course and my mom and my sister were up by the green and we're wondering what are they doing you know they're up they, they, they've driven a golf cart out I think to, to the course and um, my mom hands me a telegram and it was from the Cincinnati Reds informing me that they had drafted me in the ninth round and I would be contacted by somebody to 
discuss, uh, you know, signing my contract. And uh, my dad, you know, due to his uh, his career, uh, he was a negotiator essentially. So right. he be, he became my agent. And uh, I'll never forget the scout who drafted me. His name is Marty Daly. He comes to my home in Wellston, and um, I think my dad sent him on the road two or three different times before he finally <laughs> came back and said, "Okay, uh, we'll we'll get your number." My number was nine thousand dollars because that was what we equated the, the the value of my college scholarship. He said, "If we can't get enough to at least pay for my last year of school, then we're going to go back to school." So mm-hmm. uh, I got the nine thousand dollars. And the way they do signing bonuses, they give you half one year and half the other. So I, I signed my contract. I, I went to Billings, Montana, played baseball all summer, got home, and uh, went back to school. So I got the first half of my oh, senior wow. year that fall. <clears throat> then uh, the next year, I played baseball in Tampa uh, and was promoted uh, midseason to Burlington, Vermont. And then I went back to school for the second half of my senior year. So I spent my $9,000 wisely. Oh, that's seen by a car. Didn't do anything silly like that. So No, I just... Uh, I, and you re- immediately, you know, a lot of guys wouldn't immediately get that degree so quickly. Well, was that just a determination for you? Were your parents yeah, encouraging you to do that? Well, I, had, I had worked so hard um, to get to where I was with regards to uh, my degree. I, I was a computer science major, so... A lot of long hours and uh, really it was difficult. Pretty early for computer science, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, somewhat of a pioneer with regards to um, you know that major. That's one of the early graduating classes, at least from Marshall, uh, to get that degree. But um, it was it was it was very important to me to get it. Uh, I'd worked hard in the summertime to pay for the part of my education that my scholarship didn't cover uh, for three straight years, and I didn't want to leave it. Uh, you know, without cashing in on a degree. Right. Uh, and the degree was very important. I've never used it for a job, but it was very important for me to have it because it allowed me the opportunity to walk away from professional baseball and, and, and get into, uh, you know, a career position uh, very easily. Uh, fortunately, I never had to do it because I played baseball for 17 years. But, <laughs> right, uh, but you could have. I, I always had it in my back pocket, and it was always good, uh, especially in the minor leagues. It was a, it was, it's a, it's a very uh, comforting feeling to have because a lot of players um, – you know, once you start playing professional baseball and you don't have that degree, you're almost a prisoner of the game because you can't afford to not keep right. playing. So guys end up playing 8, 10, 12 years in the minor leagues uh, just because they have to. Then they go into coaching or whatever, and it's just, you know, it wasn't the path that I was uh, was hopeful that, uh, that that I have to take. Unfortunately, I didn't. Going off to short season ball right after you get drafted, usually it's a small place. Billings maybe is a little bigger than some, actually. But uh, what was the transition like to professional? You don't have much time to do it. Was there a bit of a culture shock there? Or was, there, was this another easy uh, transition? Well, the my performance was great. I mean, I, I was able to, again, kind of rise to the occasion as far as you know, playing against better competition and all that. But it was the first time I was ever on an airplane. Um, I, I boarded, uh, I think it was called People's Express. <laughs> I remember that. I boarded uh, the People's Express airplane. I, 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 I was kind of afraid, you know, what's this going to feel like? And I thought it was going to feel like you're, you know, in a, in a rocket ship. But it was, it was, I'll never forget my first ride on a plane. I go to Billings and uh, met all my new teammates, the guys who had just been drafted. Uh, and we became very close as a group. And we all kind of moved through the minor leagues together and as a, as a result we had a lot of guys who eventually made it to the big leagues who uh, were some of the names uh let's see we had uh kurt stillwell right uh chris sabo wow rob dibble all on this team joe oliver uh lenny harris jesus and, and and myself so we had six of our draft class had significant careers in the major leagues so pretty unusual that's pretty good organizational work right there <laughs> to say the least and and really i, I don't think it's any uh, any surprises that that group of players eventually won a World Series in right. 1990 for the Cincinnati Reds. Right, no question. Uh, so then Tampa's the next stop. Yeah, I um, started in, in Tampa, I guess it was 1984. I was drafted in 83, played there in Billings. 84, I spent uh, half a season in Tampa, uh, did w- really well, and they promoted me to double-A baseball in Burlington, Vermont. So uh, spent s- split – Split that season between those two cities, and then the following year, '85, I went back to uh, Burlington, Vermont, and spent the entire season. So uh, it was really kind of cool. We won a championship in Billings, we won a championship in Tampa in the first half, and then we won a championship in Burlington, Vermont, in both 1984 and 1985. So had 
an, an opportunity to, to win minor league championship rings my first three wow. seasons. That's pretty, that's pretty amazing. What are your memories of, of Burlington? I actually was born in Vermont. You know, it's a lovely state. You were there for about a year and a half. Is it, you got some good memories there besides the baseball? Yeah, we met some really good people uh, outside of baseball who were uh, what I'll call s- sponsor families. Uh, they help you out with your housing and uh, you know have picnics and cookouts and things for the players to do. Uh, so met some really some lifelong friends while playing in, in, in Burlington. It was a difficult place to find uh, housing because it's a college town. And right. uh, really, I think there are six or seven universities there, you know, within striking distance of, of, of Burlington. So we were always scrambling for housing. But, uh, yeah, we had a great time. And, again, a lot of really uh, fond memories from, from Burlington. Where is your relationship with uh, Tina at this point? Well, we just celebrated our 35th anniversary uh, back in January, so we would have been married uh, maybe for just a year then. I guess it was okay. just a year. So you we got married around. basically after your first year or second year yeah, of football? Yeah, I think it was after my first year we got married. That's right. after Before my second season, we got we got married, and uh, we decided that we're either going to get married or we're probably going to be going different directions as long as I'll be playing baseball. So Right. We gave it a shot, and it all worked out. Yeah, absolutely. Seems like a lot of things worked out uh, <laughs> for you. Uh, okay, we're getting close to the major leagues now. How's how's that happen? Well, I, I really felt like uh, my numbers in the minor leagues would stack up with about any of the other players I was playing with on a, as far as uh, the teams. However, as a five foot ten inch, right, one hundred and seventy pound right handed pitcher who threw about eighty eight miles an hour. Uh, I had to beat the door down a few more times to get my opportunity mm-hmm. because you know, when you when you have players who are first round picks and they're bigger, they're stronger, they throw harder. Uh, maybe they don't have the numbers you have, but there's always that promise. There's always that hope in the organization right. that these players are going to become really good players at some point. And and fortunately, I was able to just uh, be persistent enough to to hang around, and I I really never got put on a major league roster, uh, so I was not protected on the forty man roster and nobody drafted me in rule five so everybody kind of had the same opinion that you know, a player like myself you know if you don't have that outstanding arm uh, and, and, and and you know physical tools then we're not going to take a shot on you but fortunately uh middle of 1987 i was pitching uh, in nashville in triple a baseball that year uh the reds needed a player and uh they selected me to to to, to go to the big league so it was it was really cool Nashville's a cool town. Can there be uh, distractions in a place like that when you're a young man? Of course, you're married, so. You know, it was um, it's more of uh, a job city for, right. for us. We didn't really do much with regards to the right. you know, the, the outside, the baseball life. For one, uh, didn't have time, and for two, we didn't have money. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we couldn't. We two couldn't, good reasons. Yeah, we couldn't enjoy a lot of the, the things that uh, you would, if, say, if you were there on vacation. We're talking with Jeff Montgomery. He's about to be on to the major leagues. That's a good time to take our time out, as we'll be back with more on Kansas City Profiles presented by Easton Roofing, this edition with Royals Hall of Famer Jeff Montgomery. More of Danny's Reasonably Irreverent podcast after this. Before you spend your time and money going after an MBA, ask yourself why. Is it so you can tell people you got your MBA? So you can add a line to your CV? so you can call it a CV instead of a resume? Truth is, any MBA will do that. On the other hand, if your goal is to learn how to successfully manage and grow a business with real-world insights from experienced professionals, well, consider getting your MBA from Park University. Our low student-to-teacher ratio gives you personalized attention, and our face-to-face and online classes offered in eight-week terms are designed with working professionals like you in mind. No wonder the Kansas City Business Journal ranks Park University as the top MBA program in the area. Classes begin June 10th at all four KC area locations, Parkville, Downtown, Independence, and Lenexa. Visit park.edu to get started. I was duped, and I recommend you be next. For better or worse, the ultra-realistic impression of me sits now in my wife's office to spook her on a daily basis. So what is Doob? D-O-O-B. 
It's the keepsake of a lifetime, a 3D-generated, incredibly lifelike figurine. 66 cameras take an image at exactly the same moment in any pose, and state-of-the-art 3D technology transforms that into exact replicas of you, anyone you know or love, a pet, whomever is close to your heart. Create lifetime memories with a doob. Visit their Facebook page at Doob3D Kansas City, or better yet, see their incredible creations. Visit their location down on the plaza in the heart of it at 231 West 47th Street in KC Mo. Doob, be next. For many people, a family law case will be one of the most difficult experiences in their life. The law firm of Kenneth McRae will help you through it. Personal and effective help from Ken in concert with you will develop a unique strategy for your unique case. As Ken always says, divorce can be civil law, not civil war. Licensed in Kansas? Visit McRaeLawOffice.com or call 913-972-4765. Get a refreshing change of your expectations of a sports bar and restaurant at the 23rd Street Brewery in Lawrence. Matt Llewellyn's welcoming spot at Clinton Parkway in Castle covers all the bases, like their own handcrafted beers and all the televisions you need for great sports viewing, but it's the large, varied, and delicious menu that stands apart. From a favorite of mine like the awesome ahi tuna appetizer to great sandwiches, outstanding pizza, and truly fantastic entrees, the 23rd Street Brewery has it all. Matt and his friendly staff make it that much more enjoyable. Food until 10, fun until late. The 23rd Street Brewery is a can't-miss stop when you are in Lawrence. We're back on Kansas City Profiles, presented by Easton Roofing on the Reasonably Irreverent Podcast with Jeff Montgomery, Royals Hall of Famer. What was it? Uh, I, I've talked to you about this before, but for the purposes of the profile, uh, talk us about, tell us about your Major League debut and how it came about. Yeah, I, uh, I was in Des Moines, Iowa. I was playing for the... Uh, the Nashville Sounds uh, against the Iowa Cubs. And my manager's name was Jack Lind. And after that game uh, in late July of 1987, he calls me in the office and asks me what I'm going to be. He said, what are you doing tomorrow? I said, what do you mean? We've got a game. He said, well, we do have a game. He goes, but you're going to be in Cincinnati. And I'd been, I'd been called up to pitch um, in a couple of exhibition games for the Reds so they didn't have to use a pitcher right. in like a, you know, a charity game or whatever. And I thought maybe I was going up for one of those instances, but no, sure enough, that was my, my real call up. And I was uh, just so excited. I, I remember going back to the hotel in downtown Des Moines, Iowa, and um, I couldn't sleep all night. I was afraid I'd oversleep. I had an early flight. Uh, but the night before, after that game, I had a teammate whose name was Max Venable. Yeah. And uh, he had some major league time and, I asked uh, Max. I said, "When I get to Cincinnati, how do I how do I get to the ballpark?" He said, "We we'll just take a cab. You know, it's it'll be plenty of cabs at the airport." I said, "Well, how much will it cost?" He said, "Probably thirty or forty bucks." You know, and I said, "Well, I got like eight dollars." You know, <laughs> so I remember on, on in the minor leagues, uh, Tina and I had our first child, Ashley, at the time, and I'd, I'd get my mill money, and before I got on the plane, I'd give her half for diapers, and I'd take the other half for <laughs> for the for the road trip, and you know, found ways to, to get by on about six or eight dollars a day. Wow. So, uh, but anyway, Max loaned me fifty dollars. So when I get to the uh, to Cincinnati, I get to the ballpark. But I I get to the ballpark and uh, it's just spectacular because I'd watched uh, a number of games at Riverfront Stadium growing up as a kid. Right. And um, but it was just an unbelievable thrill when you put on that major league uniform for the first time. You walk up the tunnel to the dugout and you walk out on that field and you no longer you out looking at, at guys like Johnny Bench and Pete Rose and Joe Morgan. You're now one of the guys in uniform and your teammates, and uh, you know, you're now major leaguer. So it was just um, probably one of the most memorable uh, experience that I can I can I can think back to that uh, still just you know gives me chill bumps when I think about it. How did those uh, you know back in the day? Sometimes the rookies were supposed to be you know not seen, not heard, whatever. How, how did a, a group of superstars basically treat a young guy uh they were good uh the only thing i remember that they were not so good about was i had a routine every day of um, of running at about four o'clock in the afternoon i'd go out on a warning track and just run my foul pole to foul pole foul pole to foul pole i'd do that for about half an hour and you know i remember a couple of veteran pitchers came up to me and said look you're you're really kind of making us look bad you know, <laughs> oh. why, don't, why don't you cut it out <laughs> so I, I stopped my running and i i'd 
occasionally do it, you know, like before I went to the ballpark. And, but then I found my performance was, was lacking a little bit, and I could attribute it to not running. So I started running again, regardless of what they were thinking, and right. uh, got back on track. But, uh, yeah, they treated me great. I mean, they uh, had some great teammates, Terry Francona, uh, Buddy Bell, uh, and Pete Rose was my manager. So it was, it was really spectacular to have those type guys around and learn from guys that – I could tell that Buddy Bell and that Terry Francona had the, the kind of characteristics that would lead to being good managers. And sure enough, they Terry's still managing, and Buddy Bell had the opportunity to manage as well. Then the offseason comes. It's your boyhood team. You've made the majors. you performed fairly well. Uh, you had that thrill, and then you get traded. And it's not like you get traded for some kind of a big star or something either. Uh uh, Van Snyder, who would go on to play 19 games in the major leagues, uh, that must have been pretty jarring. We talked about all the things that have been smooth and you know fortuitous for you, but uh, the first slap in the face as a as a professional that must have been tough. It was actually uh, welcome, uh, really, when I got the phone call because I had I'd been up for oh about two to three months in in '87, and um, I didn't feel like I had performed anywhere near you know, my capability, uh, I had a number of good games, but I also had some terrible games. So, uh, I didn't feel like I had a good chance of making the roster in the opening day. Of, so you uh, felt like maybe you'd shown them the wrong side of your performance. I just, perhaps. you know, I, I think like a lot of, you know, young players, you try to do things you're not capable of doing and you get yourself in trouble and, uh, you know, you're trying to make pitches you don't have the ability to make and, Anyway, I, I, I got away from my game a little bit, and uh, I think I kind of left a bad impression uh, with my manager, Pete Rose. And, I, I, I again, I didn't feel like I had a chance to make the, make the club out of spring training. But when I got traded, I got traded to the Royals. I get the phone call, and it was a Reds minor league director. His name was Chief Bender. And he said, hey, uh, we're trading you. You just got traded to the to the Royals. But... I'm thinking, I'm going to make this club. I felt really good because I'd never heard of Mark Gubaza. I'd never heard of Bud Black. <laughs> I'd, I'd heard of uh, Dan Quisenberry and Bo Jackson and George Brett and Brett Saberhagen. Those are about the only guys. On, I'd never heard of Frank White. So I, I, I'm i going to this organization. I'm thinking, I got a great chance to make this team. I really got a great chance to make the team. And sure enough, I go to spring training about oh, a week or two later. I, I got traded sometime like mid-February. Uh, I go to spring training, and one of the first people I met was the general manager, John Sherholtz. And he said, hey, we've looked at your numbers as a starter and a reliever. We think you're going to – you're cut out to be a relief pitcher. So we're going to send you to Omaha and uh, convert you back to a relief pitcher. So my bubble was burst in about my first 20 minutes as a Royal that I'm not going to make the club. Right. Uh, but I pitched really well in spring training camp, and it wasn't long after uh, that early part of the season. I pitched well in Omaha, and uh, they were able to call me up. And I, I can't remember what it was, but sometime I think in late May – of 88, I got called up and I was fortunate to, to stick in the big leagues. That was a star-studded team as well with some big personalities and uh, maybe a clubhouse that we wouldn't sort of think of royal-like. Maybe some guys who, uh, you know, were a little too big for their britches or whatever, and then some guys who were obviously down to earth. What was that clubhouse like to come into? Uh, the guys that really made me feel good and welcome, uh, Steve Farr, Brett Saberhagen, Mark Gubaza, and George Brett. Those guys really were good to me. Um, and, and especially George, it didn't matter if you're a pitcher or you're a position player. If you're a young player, uh, he wants to make you feel at home. He wants to make you feel like you belong on the team. And uh, he was really good. Uh, and I saw it over the years. I think I played six years with George. And during those years, I, it was it was very similar with a lot of young players that would come up. He would, he would do his best to make them feel welcome and at home and it's one of the things that really rubbed off on on, on players like Brett Saberhagen and Mark Ubiza who lived with George when they were rookies uh, they kind of paid back the same thing to players like me when I came to the organization and, uh, but anyway just made you feel uh, at home and welcome uh, and part of the team. We're sitting in uh, your lovely home now and uh, but when you came to Kansas City you were talking about you're a year removed from not having cab fare uh, so what was your initial introduction to Kansas City and uh, as a, a family man yeah so I uh, I'm in I started season in Omaha and uh, we went on a road trip for the College World Series a long road trip and during that time uh, my wife Tina and our daughter Ashley they went back to West Virginia which is where we were living in the off season. 
uh, near Tina's uh, mom and dad. So they were, they were back home and uh, I get the phone call, um, late one night that I'm being promoted to Kansas city. So I called Tina and she, she's, she basically said, I, I, I was expecting you to call and you got, she, she was expecting me to get called up because I was really pitching well, but we get here and, um, you know, kind of same thing. A lot of the, uh, you know, a lot of the wives, you know, were really open and helpful with Tina getting us, uh, you know, set up and, you know, letting us know where, you know, we're a good place to rent, you know, uh, all those things. And, uh, one of those wives was Kathy McFarlane, Mike McFarlane's wife and, my wife Tina and Kathy are very good friends and they talk almost every day still today. So, right. you know, it's, uh, it was good. It was, uh, a place that, uh, when we first learned we got traded, Tina was not excited. She's like, you know, I, I can't believe we're going to Kansas. And, uh, <laughs> eventually, um, after a couple of years of playing baseball here, uh, we decided to, to make it our permanent home and raise our children here and send them to school here and, still here today. I don't think there's anything I could do to convince her to, to live anywhere else. <laughs> Where did you live when you first moved here? We lived on uh, College Boulevard at about Quivera. Right. So lived in that area we rented, and um, I think there was another player or two that were renting in the same uh, apartments. What was the uh, what was the minimum salary when you uh, were started playing for the Royals? I think it was around 52000 Okay. I think it's what it was. It, it, it's, it's around, it's a little, I think we... Went from fifty thousand to fifty two five or something like that right. um, during my first year or so, but um, so it was good. It was still good money for a guy who would, didn't have cab fare. Yeah, like I mean, a year was, before. <laughs> I mean, I thought I was, I thought I was rich. I mean, <laughs> making making almost ten thousand dollars a month to me was more than I made in the entire season. You know, my four years in the minor league, so it was, uh, it was a big boost. You quickly became a success with the Royals, too, uh, as their fortunes would start to wane, although the first few years there would still always be high hopes for the Royals. Uh, one year as a setup man, and then you became a, a closer. Uh, first of all, what was it like for you to be told and to transition to being a relief pitcher? Was it something that uh, you embraced? Yeah, I was pretty excited about it. Um, even though the year before when I was in Cincinnati, I was a starting pitcher in the minor leagues and uh, was promoted as a starting pitcher, I, I really felt like, uh, I was better as a relief pitcher. Um, my arm responded real well to pitching back to back to back days. So, uh, I was, I embraced the opportunity to become a relief pitcher. I would never envision I'd become a closer. Uh, but I've learned, you know, from playing now and, uh, in looking back, I, I think every, every relief pitcher should aspire to be a closer because I think it, uh, it elevates your, you know, your position and, uh, I think it elevates your game because you have to in, uh, uh, that's why I was open to it. I was welcoming, uh, you know, that chance to become a, a relief pitcher again. I'm very fortunate uh, at the time that I did get a chance to start closing some games. Uh, you were the Rural Age Relief Man in 1993. You tied the club record for saves with 45. But as the few years were going on, the Royals were becoming less competitive. Uh, what was that like as a ball player? You, uh, closers, especially good ones, they're pitching in wins almost every time, whereas the rest of the team is is fighting it. Uh, what, what was that like? Yeah, I, I think the first half of the career, uh, really up through the strike of 94 right. slash 95, uh, we had really good teams. Games, right. Uh, you know, we'd win 90-plus games and not get in the postseason because there was only two divisions at right. the time. There were no wild cards, so you had to win your division right. to get in, and it was, it was hard, especially when you had teams like the Oakland A's who were – kind of superpower teams right. at that stage. Right. So, uh, you know, we were kind of ended up to the end. Uh, and I think 94 was probably maybe the best team I was on as a Royal. And I, I felt really confident we were going to do something that year postseason-wise. And then the strike hit, and obviously the postseason was canceled. But um, then really after the strike, that was when the organization – I think you won, what, 14 games in a row headed into the strike? Yeah, we won a bunch of games. And we were, we were healthy. Uh, everybody was clicking, and we were deep. Pitch, starting pitching was deep. Our bullpen was really good. Uh, had a really solid, you know, uh, defensive team, and had some guys that hit the ball. So we were we were a complete team. I really felt good about our team, and uh, probably one of the most disappointing uh, stages of my career uh, when we unfortunately weren't able to finish that season and kind of see what we could have done. But um, yeah, it was after after the strike was over in '95. It seems like that's kind of when the organization started dismantling, you know, 
cutting payroll and, and just kind of chopping things down. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, Mr. Kaufman had passed away a few years earlier and there was no, there wasn't a, an owner in place. So there was, uh, the foundation I think was kind of running the club and, uh, there was a finite amount of dollars that they could use to, you know, to, to bring players in. It just didn't work out very well. No, it didn't. But uh, you, you had that taste of, a, of being on a good ball club. Uh, and then, but you were still a fine player and an all-star player as the team wasn't uh, that good as a competitive guy who had won championships in the minor leagues, been on a Reds team that was just basically coming off uh, and then entering another period of greatness. And then, a, you know, a good, a really good team that just couldn't crack the playoffs. What, what was it like playing on, on losing teams? You know, every day you go to the ballpark and I don't care if you're 10 games out of first place, or you're in first place by 10 games, you go to the ballpark every day and, and do exactly the same thing. You just get ready for the game. Um, it didn't matter, you know, if I blew a save the night before or if I struck out the side the night before I, I did exactly the same thing every day and you know, even teams today you know people talk about you know the Royals going through this rebuilding process you know what what's the morale like it's got to be tough to go out there and, and honestly it's not just because every day uh, something new is going to happen right and, and players don't focus on the record they don't focus on the standings they don't focus on anything other than getting ready to play that baseball game because if you don't prepare, you're going to get exposed and, uh, you know, bad things are going to happen. So, you know, the real pros understand uh, how to get ready and, and how to deal with all this, you know, all the distractions. So uh, it was the same for me, honestly, every day going out there. It's, it sure is a whole lot more fun when you win. I mean, even as a fan and now a broadcaster, it's a lot more fun when you win. But, uh, you know, as a player, you, you realize that you're going to lose at least 50 games a year regardless how good your team is <laughs> right so you, you have to prepare family life you touched on it before you, you miss a lot of things uh, but you do have a, a, a you know fairly long off season in baseball uh what was what was it like raising four kids and and obviously a baseball wife is going to be a, a pretty heroic figure in these uh, situations but what was that like for you yeah our, our life has always been kind of the feast or famine and um i got back into broadcasting I got into broadcasting 10 years ago, so I got back in baseball 10 years ago, and it's the same now as it was back then, only now with all of our children grown and out of the house, uh, it's not as hectic. It's it's a lot easier lifestyle now, but you know, back then uh, I was gone you know, half the summer on the road and playing baseball the rest of the time, so uh, when the season was over, Tina immediately said, okay, they're yours now, <laughs> and I had, to, had a lot of catching up to do, but... Yeah. Uh, we we didn't we knew as part of uh, the career part of the lifestyle that uh, you know there were cer- certain prices you had to pay in order to 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 be a professional athlete and uh, we understood that and it all worked out. You were active as far as uh, baseball union and things like that as well. And uh, can you talk a little bit about the trials and tribulations of being somebody who's on the other side, as it were, and how it maybe affected negotiations for you personally and things like that. Uh, I think the organization realized that uh, there had to be a, a player rep for for you know every team. I don't think um, I was ever penalized, so to speak, for for you know, being our team's representative to to the players' association. Um, I was really I, I figured out after a while all I was was essentially a mouthpiece uh, for uh, our players' association. Back then, there was no you know email, internet. I mean, everything's done by either a letter or over the phone. So during the difficult times, whether it be a strike or a lockout, my job as a player representative was to, to make sure all the players were informed, uh, hosting conference calls and getting information from the union and then relaying that information to the players. And I, I think the organization, they always understood that that was just part of what somebody had to do as their, as their role. And uh, I, there were never any you know, ill feelings about that. When you were... Uh playing and playing at, at, at a high level and playing with the Royals, did you have moments that you would consider some of your big moments and uh, what, were, what were some of your big big thrills highlights? You know, you weren't able to experience postseason play, but you were an all-star. And uh, what were some of the high points for you? You know, I, I think looking back, um, I think everybody remembers, their, their, I remember my first game as a Royal. I remember my last game as a Royal. Right. Uh, all those games in between, I think I pitched in 700 games. Uh, all those games in between kind of, they're kind of a blur together. Right. Um, 
you know, the all-star games were special. They were fun, uh, especially the one in Baltimore. It was one of my favorite road cities, road parks, and have a chance to uh, have a scoreless inning in that all-star game. And we won the game, which was pretty cool. So, uh, you know, a lot of good memories. I probably remember more uh, about my teammates and about my managers and uh, then I do the games. Right. Um, just some real special people uh, that you're surrounded with on a daily basis and you get to be real close with some of them, uh, especially having the chance to play essentially 12 seasons here in Kansas City. Um, saw a lot of people in and out the door, so to speak, uh, over the years. But uh, being there for that period, uh, get a chance to know a lot of the people in the organization, a lot of people, uh, a lot of the players. Uh, I think I remember that more than the games. Right. Let's uh, wind down things as, as a baseball player. You, I know from talking with you many times that you probably could have played a little bit longer, but uh, you had arm problems. Uh, you'd always been a person, as you talked about, who who had a you know a healthy arm and uh, you know kind of a rubber arm guy when was the first uh, thing that cropped up on you and was that a little jarring for you well I think in the middle of the 94 season things I started feeling some stuff shoulder wise uh, by I guess early to mid 1996 um, I started I think having more difficulty with regards to my arm slot and doing all the things you have to do. And in fact, one of my teammates, Tim Belcher, I was playing long toss with him. He said, do you know your arm slots way down from what you're used to being? And I said, I, I don't feel like it is. And we got out some video and looked at a, a game or so. And sure enough, my arm slot had dropped within uh, a month or so after that I had shoulder surgery. So I had rotator cuff sh surgery. Uh, so you were compensating for something. Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're just when, um, your body tries to eliminate pain, tries to avoid pain. And, uh, my arm slot was dropping down as a result. My pitches were flattening out and I just, you know, I wasn't getting the success and res results you want to get. So, um, had a surgery work really hard, uh, starting immediately after the surgery to be back on the roster in 97. I came back probably about a month earlier than I should have. Results were not good. Uh, it was so frustrating. I was going to retire, actually. Uh, Tina and I talked about, you know, I, I work so hard, uh, and I'm not getting, you know, the results. You know, I don't want to keep doing this. So uh, I, I announced to uh, my manager, Bob Boone, and my pitching coach, Bruce Keeson, that I, I, I think, think it was time for me to retire. And they're like, no, no, no. You've worked too hard. We're not going to let you. So they put me on the disabled list for no reason. I was healthy. Uh -huh. It was really more of a mental rehabilitation to let me just kind of, you know, work through some things without the stress and pressure of trying to do it in the ninth inning with a, you know, right with a, with a lead. <laughs> so, um, within a, a month or so after that, things started to click and uh, had a really good, <clears throat> excuse me, second half of the season. <clears throat> so I had a good second half of that '96 season, or I'm sorry, '97 season, right. and then. Uh, Good 98. 98, I had a really good season. And 99, I had a hip injury. And uh, my hip injury really is what forced me to retire. Uh, I couldn't get the drive and the in, in, in the force that I needed based on, you know, my, my sore hip. And that hip eventually got replaced. Mm -hmm. And now since then, my other hip's been replaced. So <laughs> uh, sure enough, you know, just all that torquing and all that uh, impact from pitching, I think I just kind of wore the tread off the tire. And uh, I've talked to you, uh, obviously, about this, too. You, you could have pitched uh, another year. You had, you had offers to pitch. What was the decision-making process for you not to do that? Well, the 99 season, I was, I was so bad uh, performance-wise. I just I didn't want to go through that again. So I didn't, I didn't try to find uh, another job, so to speak, for the, uh, for the upcoming season. And I was—I remember I, I, I continued to do my workouts and physically I, I was in good shape, but arm-wise I hadn't even, hadn't picked up a baseball. So, uh, but in, in in spring training that year, uh, I had some calls from teams wanting me to come back and want me to play. In fact, Bruce Keeson, who was the pitching coach for the Baltimore Orioles during that season, he called me and he goes, "We need a pitcher." He goes, "Any way we can get you to come down to spring training?" I'm like, "No, I I think I've already decided I'm I'm finished." And he said, "Well, they, they're throwing some numbers around, uh, you know." contract wise he goes would you be interested in, in, in talking about it? I said no unfortunately you know I'm, I'm not in baseball shape uh, I don't know how long my hip's gonna 
uh, be healthy. And it, 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 it got, it, it got to a point where it, it felt a lot better, but I didn't want to go through the, um, the pain of backing up bases and giving up <laughs> home runs and all the things that happen when you're not healthy. Right. You, uh, while you're sort of forced out, you seem to be one of those people who maybe was more cut out for the transition to go away from baseball. Some other people necessarily aren't. You quickly became somebody who got involved in, in a lot of ventures. Uh, did you take, did, did you let it breathe at all? Or were you somebody always who had some, like to have something going on? Yeah. I mean, I, one of my former teammates, Steve Farr told me, he said, there will never be any grass that grows under your feet. <laughs> and, and, and I actually, um, invested in union broadcasting, uh, during, uh, the, I think it's during the 97 season. Uh, so I got involved in business. That was my first real business venture, uh, was still, you know, as a player. So, uh, I got involved there, but I, it wasn't an easy transition, but it wasn't hard. And, and I'll say, <laughs> okay. I'll tell you why is that, uh, my last game as a professional player got rained out and it was on a Sunday in early October. Uh, they canceled the game at about 1030 in the morning cause it was going to be raining all day long. Right. So they just canceled the game and. I, I go in and take off my uniform and, and, it, and it hit me that it's the last time I'm ever going to take off that uniform. And I threw it in the dirty clothes pile and I went in the shower and I started crying and I cried wow. for about 20 minutes nonstop. I mean, wow. I, was, I was embarrassed. I was emotional. Uh, I finally got the cry out, uh, went and put on my, my clothes and went home and I never thought about baseball again. That was it. It was over. Wow. That's, so, that's a fantastic story. Uh, but you must it, probably it was a part of it was that you felt like you had something taken away from you didn't have the chance to go out there and actually hey this is my last game I'm gonna you know smell the popcorn and you know see the fans and all that stuff yeah it was um, it was kind of interesting because uh, apparently the Royals had some kind of a ceremony they were gonna do for me right. and it never happened mm -hmm. uh, they were gonna I guess uh, show their appreciation for my 12 years of service and uh, present me with uh, something on the scoreboard. And, uh, but unfortunately it never happened and that was it. But, uh, that wasn't really a big deal to me. I didn't really <laughs> need that. I didn't care about that. Uh, it was just to me, I, I mean, I'd started playing baseball, you know, when I was four or five years old and, you know, here I am now, I think I was 37 at the time, last time ever, I'm going to be, you know, playing for real. That's a neat story. You've been successful in business. What uh, led you to think that maybe you'd wanted to get back into baseball in the broadcasting role? I didn't. Yeah, nothing Nothing ever crossed my mind about getting back into baseball. Um, I'd been coaching my boys' amateur baseball teams, and I finished coaching them. I coached one for five years, and my son Connor coached his team for five years, and then my son Spencer, I coached his for four years. So I had nine years of uh, amateur uh, baseball coaching. That was kind of my baseball fill, I guess. Mm -hmm. And, uh, the winter, uh, after I'd coached my, uh, my younger son Spencer's team, I get a phone call from Mike Swanson from the Royals. And he asked me if I'd be interested in, um, doing some broadcast work. I said, yeah, I, I would, I would think about it. Cause he said, I, I've heard you on the radio and, uh, cause I, I, I think you're very fair. I think uh, you'd be good at it. And, uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to put your name in the hat with Fox and, um, you know, they'll reach out to you. I didn't hear a word from Fox. This was probably in January, February. I didn't hear a word for Fox. Uh, this is 2010, right? Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't heard, heard a word in, uh, probably like late April, early May, I get a phone call from the game producer whose name was Kevin Shank. Right. He said, uh, Hey, I understand you'd be willing to do some TV work for us. I said, yeah, I, you know, I, I talked to Swanee back in the winter, but I haven't heard anything else. <laughs> right. He said, well, we'd like to, we'd like to, you know, get you started. I said, you know, when you're thinking, he said, well, how about the day at three o'clock? And, uh, <laughs> so I, uh, you know, he said, show up at three o'clock coat and tie and, um, yeah, we'll get you started. And that was, I, I was just literally thrown into broadcasting, never had any formal training or education, you know, nothing, uh, you know, nothing I could really do, um, but just go out and, 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 and sink or swim. And I'm lucky I swam. I was, it's really, it's a really hard job, uh, when you're doing live television, uh, especially without any training. Uh, but I had a good partner in Joel Goldberg and I worked along with, uh, Paul Splitorf. He was very good as far as helping me out. So, you know, after enough repetitions, you kind of figure things out and you get better at it. So 
having done it now for for 10 seasons i'm i'm very happy that i was able to get back in the game but it wasn't a path that i uh was seeking uh it was just kind of i got to that fork in the road and i guess that's what happened tell us about uh you know the champ the, the two championship years for the royals uh you know you've been around a lot of winning when you were younger then a lot of losing then a lot of losing early as a broadcaster and you were a royal so there must have been a certain amount of satisfaction you have to be detached a little bit you're not on the team per se but in a way you are well it was great to have a chance to see all those players who eventually became the you know the the key players in their their two championship seasons um you know hearing about them when they got drafted and uh i remember when eric hosmer uh you know when he arrived in kansas city for the first time at his press conference and had a chance to ask questions you know and and then you just get to know them and you're around the guys uh pretty much on a daily basis uh you feel like you're kind of part of the family and you know you travel in the charter with the team right. and uh it's 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 a nice relationship um and then to see how the team kind of came together i'm going to say in the middle of 2014 and uh they learned how to win uh you started seeing signs of it in probably 2013 uh there were some special things that happened uh i remember on the last game of 13 uh they had a grand slam a walk-off grand slam to win that game and you kind of felt like 14 had a chance to be something special but it didn't start out great. I mean, it right. wasn't like they, you know, they, they had a great start to the season. I think they're about 500 after after 100 games. Right. And um, but then they figured out how to win. And and you know, like unfortunately, right now we're we're watching Royals, and it seems like they play good enough to lose a lot right. of games. That was a team that learned how to win, and they played good enough to win a lot of games. And I think that's that's the stage that you know having. Being you know a level away from the clubhouse and seeing it uh, on a daily basis, you can tell when the team starts to gel. You can tell when you know they start playing you know as a team better and and doing little things to help the team win, as opposed to just trying to keep themselves in the major leagues playing as an individual. Tell us about your family now, what they're doing. Yeah, uh, so my youngest daughter, uh, Catherine, Carcady. Uh, she just moved back to Kansas City from Manhattan, Kansas, where she was a student at Kansas State University. She's uh, going to do something in the, in the restaurant industry, so mm-hmm. she she lives on her own. And then uh, my next son, uh, Spencer, he actually works for the Royals. He 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 was able to get a job um, working for the Royals. Uh, he was actually on the tarp crew uh, a couple of years in 2013 and 14. Uh, he has a World Series ring, as a matter of fact. So, uh, and then he found his own job with the Royals through a some kind of a, uh, a website that they post all the jobs on. So people think I got him a job, but he got his own job. So that was good. What's he do? Uh, he's in stadium operations right okay. now. So uh, he's been with him for a couple of years. He's got his uh, degree from St. Louis University in sports management. Oh, so okay. he wants to be the general manager someday. So we'll see how that plays. Then my uh, my next son Connor, he. Uh, he was at St. Louis University student as well. Uh, he's now a software engineer for Pinterest. Okay. And, uh, he's been working with Pinterest for about seven years. Uh, one of their early uh, hires. Um, he was fortunate enough when they went public to be invited to go to Wall Street and uh, celebrate with the, uh, the main guys with Pinterest and, and, and be part of their celebration. So he actually works remotely. He worked in San Francisco, then New York, and then back to San Francisco. And about a year and a half ago, uh, he was able to uh, get an opportunity to work out of his house here in Kansas City. Uh, he's married to uh, Mackenzie, and she's expecting a baby in August of this summer. So uh, that'll be our third grandchild. Uh, our older daughter, Ashley, uh, she's married to Wester. She has two children, uh, Addison and Leo. Uh, Addison's three, and Leo's one. So we have two grandchildren, and it looks like they have one on the way. So. Uh, that really keeps us going. Uh, really busy here at the Montgomery House, uh, especially on the weekends. Uh, kind of have a little bit of a tradition. All the kids come over on Sundays for dinner. So, oh, that's great. Uh, it's, it works out really well. They love hanging out by our pool and uh, just being part of a big family. And Tina, what did you say? Thirty-eight years. We've been we met thirty-eight years ago. Been married for over thirty-five. Uh, she's been a stay-at-home mom. She, uh, I guess she's a. Uh, Domestic engineer. <laughs> and a good one, obviously. Yeah, she's done a great job. I think it's something that, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, misconception about, uh, you know, the the glamour of being a professional athlete. Right. But we spent 
we spent a lot of years uh, just you know trying to scrape to get by. Five years in the minor leagues, and then you know a couple years in the major leagues. You you have to play for a while to to accomplish financially. Right. And uh, but you know during that time, you still have a lot of the stuff going on uh, as a young player. <clears throat> excuse me. It's, uh, and you have to find a way to get by. And if you don't have somebody uh, good and strong, able to run the household, uh, it's a lot more difficult. And Tina did a great job. Well, Jeff, uh, your story is is a great one, and it's also you know it's a perseverance type of story too, because uh, you know you had to overcome things. Not that you didn't have success all along the way, as you chronicled, but you're not the biggest guy in the world, and you had to prove things uh, to people all along the way. It must have been you must be proud <laughs> proud of yourself. Well, it's it's more <laughs> satisfying, I think, when you have to work hard for something, um, and that's one thing that always. Uh, you know, my, my dad had a, had a saying for me, he said, he goes, uh, good things, uh, happen to good people, uh, especially those people who are persevering. Uh, but they also have to work their tails off while they're waiting. So he was always, uh, instrumental and, you know, was, there were certainly times when there's doubt, there's uncertainties on whether you're going to make it or not. But my dad was always very, very helpful and helped me get through those times. It's great to have that kind of backing. Uh, Jeff, it's been a pleasure. I enjoyed it very much, and uh, much good luck to you. It doesn't seem like you need it, though. Well, thanks, Danny. I appreciate the opportunity. This podcast was made possible by our great sponsors like Easton Roofing, the presenting sponsor of Kansas City Profiles at the Danny Kling Scale Reasonably Irreverent Podcast. Easton Roofing where integrity matters. We hope you enjoyed the latest Danny Kling Scale Reasonably Irreverent Podcast. Come back soon for something fresh and new. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.